0: There is a line not derived from the scripture that Jesus is citing, but derived from Jesus' closest and deepest convictions. He's proof texting when he says, Moses referred to God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the axiom, the, the fundamental reality that Jesus is recognizing is to say that God is the God of the living. It's a phrase that shows up throughout the Bible, but there are lots of phrases that show up about God, various aspects and descriptions of God. What hooked me this week was how essential Jesus understood this attribute of God to be. So essential that in fact Jesus was using it to reinterpret portions of the Bible. He was saying, when Moses called God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because I know for certain that no matter what is said, in any and all cases, God must be the God of the living. Therefore, in some sense, under some system that I'm not going to try to nail down and describe like you guys just did with your funny little trap, they must still be with us. They must still be alive. This episode at the end of Luke 20 comes as Jesus is being attacked by a horde of ravening priests. I mean, kind of. He's been attacked first by the Pharisees. If you imagine the Pharisees being the people who are popular out in the countryside, whose version of the religion is very much back to the basics, back to the text, but with a lot of their own interpretation layered on, and their basic impulse being Conservative moral stability. You'd be forgiven for saying that this episode comes just after Jesus has been had extended conversation with the Bible Belt, the Pharisees, popular countrywide, a strong movement of moralism and conservative stability, rooted in Scripture but with a heavy, if unrecognized, dose of interpretation on top. These guys, though, these priests who come to speak to Jesus, they're not the Bible belters. This is the mainline church. The halls of the church is seen in the halls of power. These are the the Episcopalians, the Anglicans, right? The ones who conduct the worship service for the queen. These people, unlike the Bible Belt Pharisees, are used to being much more cool in their theology, much more minimalist. They say, we'll just take what the book says, thank you, and we won't try to interpret it too much. Much more rationalist, much more used to having to explain themselves and justify themselves to the Romans, to the Egyptians, to the Babylonians. Much more used to putting Jewish faith and belief and practice into terms that everybody can understand, and so they are also much more skeptical. Those Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, and so they are sad. You see, in case you'd forgotten your element, your uh, your Sunday school lessons. They did not believe in the resurrection in any way at all. They held to what was a traditional view at the time that that death was like sleep. Uh, Modern, modern philosophers, well, one modern philosophy book has tried to tell me that it's impossible to imagine non-existence. Right. In order to imagine non-existence, you're something that's existing. And so you're all caught up in this logical knot. But I sleep every night. And when I don't dream, I go from one moment to the next with nothing in between. And I can imagine perfectly well what non-existence is like. Thank you very much. And the ancients did too. The ancients, many of them, imagined death to be similar to sleep. But for the Sadducees, that was the end of the story. We sleep and that's it. For the Pharisees... And for Jesus, although in different ways I will I will contest, there was more to the story, because God is God of the living. They set up this scenario to trap Jesus, right? The, he's not the only one to tell a parable, and here they go. They say, "Well, um, if there's a resurrection, then this woman who was married to seven brothers over the course of her life, if they're all good people and they're all participants in the resurrection, who is she going to be married to at the end? To which Jesus more or less replies, who says marriage to one of you goons is God's plan for any woman at all? Jesus says in the eternity, in in the kingdom to come, there will not be marriage or connect. we we don't know what there is but there will not be marriage or connection or the same ownership whose wife will she be whose, whose will she be Jesus very strongly comes out comes out and says we don't we may not know exactly what will what things will be like but I do know she won't be anybody's she will be God's He says, those who will have a share in the world to come will neither give themselves nor be given in marriage. I don't think this is Jesus going on a tirade against the married life. Some people throughout Christian history have interpreted this to say, okay, Christians shouldn't get married. And I don't think that's what he's saying. I think Jesus is saying that when God's kingdom comes, And our world is made new. There will be new horizons. And your petty little logical conundrums about how exactly human relationships will be structured are way too ambitiously elevated in your mind if you think that that's what it will be important to us and to God on that day. That... You imagine a certain series of events and you imagine a certain series of priorities and then you say, well, we have a conundrum here. We have a, a logical paradox. And a paradox which Jesus tears down, not by trying to resolve it through some pat trick or out logic them using the rules of their game, But simply to say that their complex, overly ambitious, overly self-regarding ways of thinking about the world and about the future and about God's plan for history have robbed them of access to a humbler and simpler truth. That we do not know the mind of God, but we do know that God is the God of the living. Is that what we really believe? Do we really imagine God as being primarily, first, centered on life and on our present moment? We we so often talk about The God of history, the God of space, we look at the stars to gain perspective an an awe and an awareness of our own smallness. We look at God of all people all across the world and we become, I believe, caught up ourselves in our own little airtight philosophies, our own little scenarios, that reflect our priorities and our expectations, and that like with the Sadducees put in Jesus' path, we lose sight of a simpler and humbler way of viewing the world around us. One that I believe scripture offers us afresh time and again. To imagine, to walk with me today, I ask you to imagine that God does not just live above. We always imagine that God lives above, up there, right? Uh, A small friend of mine who, in my ongoing effort to keep my family out of my sermons, will remain unnamed, um, once asked me, where is God? And I said, "Well, wh- wh- where, do you, where do you think God is?" And he pointed up. "There is something about up, about out there, about the scope of the starry sky in particular, but blow- fast-blowing clouds can do it too, trees waving. And I'd say, even the close ceiling of a nursery when you raise your eyes up to it, can still provoke that feeling of perspective, of God's eye view. I tried to tell my small friend that God is also in here. But somehow, for most of us, we most comfortably and reflexively place God up and above. This is legitimate. This is not a a problem with us. Unless we decide that it's the rule, unless we decide, okay, God does in fact live in heaven and not anywhere else, uh, then we've stumbled pretty severely. But presuming most of us don't do that. This is a useful way of talking about God's sovereignty and a useful way of provoking awe in our hearts where we fundamentally recognize that sovereignty. But I want to say that God is not just above us in space. We who are faithful, we who are reading scripture also frequently understand to be God to be parked up above time as well. That God's perspective on time may not be the same as ours is an insight as ancient as scripture. Job begs that his words may be written in stone so that they will last and then calls for redemption. I know that my Redeemer liveth. This phrase that in, story, that in song has been repeated so much that it echoes on our, it resonates in our heartstrings. Job see, understands or believes that God sees these events and sees the passage of time differently than we do. It's interesting to note, purely as a side note here, that Job gets his wish. Job, who wishes that his words could be written down, may perhaps with a pen of iron so that they be incised in rock, there is no granite inscription, half so deep and half so durable as five billion copies of the Bible. Job's words have achieved an immortality That at the writing, you know, carving deep in stone doesn't even begin to compare. Job's lament, Job's charge against God. And then, at the last, Job's recognition of his own lack of perspective have echoed, will probably echo, for as long as there are humans to hear it. It's incredible the degree to which that prayer has been answered. But when we imagine our God above history, just as we imagine our God above our world, it is so vitally important that we don't make the same mistake that we could have made the first time saying God is relegated to heaven and therefore not anywhere else. God is above history and seeing history differently and therefore separated off. Because that's what we so commonly do. Let me describe for you. Three different ways of thinking about time, of thinking about history, of thinking about our lives. Three different ways that, although they kind of blur one into into the other and interconnect, I hope to persuade you are, in fact, quite different. The first is the biblical view of history. She's not looking into the future. As my Bible professor at Goshen once told me, Paul Kime, the great. In the conversational geometry of ancient Hebrew, your past is in before you. Your past is in front of you. My sins are ever before me. Those aren't sins he hasn't committed yet. Those are the sins that he already did. The past is in front of you, visible. You can see the things in the past. As they get farther away, you see them less. And the future is called the the behind-the-back days, as though you are sitting on a chariot or a wagon, and the landscape is rolling by you, going from completely unknown to suddenly quite close, and then fading away into memory as time goes on. It's a very simple view of our journey through the world, but very counterintuitive to those of us today who have a in many, many cases, a very determinist materialist view where we say life is a screenplay or a film. Each moment similar to the next, each moment immediately caused by the one before it. This is the determinism that caused John Calvin in the 1700s to say not only were some people selected and designated before the dawn of time to go to heaven. But double predestination says that some people were selected and predestined since before the dawn of time to go to hell. Because all of time has been written. It's already done. The work is complete. The screenplay just needs to be played out. And in this vision... It'd be, it's like a it'd be like a YouTube video. You could move the slider to any point on it. And wherever you go, it it, it already is. It has already happened in a sense. Now, this view is not 100 percent incompatible with the ancient biblical view. It is, in fact, compatible. Right. If you were on a wagon going past a film strip the ancient worldview and this modern, modernist, concrete worldview work out. The difference is that this one says a lot more than the ancient one did. Where the ancient worldview left room for the driver of the wagon to change courses, right? Where the ancient worldview felt like your perspective could not be readily shifted, but that things would fade into the distance. This one asserts that no, it is all concrete. And it made, tied that assertion to their understanding of God. How could God be all-powerful if all of creation is not already written and if all events are not already predicted and planned? To to say anything less was considered heresy because it was to threaten the throne and the sovereignty of God. How can you say God's all-powerful if you don't say that the future is already concrete? Which takes us to the contemporary view. I'm very careful here not to use the word modern because we confuse modern and contemporary many times. The modern era actually started with, well, us in the 1500s, more or less. With the rise of Anabaptism, Rationalism, the Reformation, the modern era actually goes back quite far. Modernity is characterized by a belief in, thi- in concrete, deterministic clarity when it comes to our history, Our science. And ourselves. A concreteness and a clarity that much of our contemporary understandings of physics threatens when it comes to our science. And what we've learned about individual personality and psychology threatens it into when it comes to ourselves And I believe that by turning to scripture, we may, in some ways, recapture a threat to modernity's airtight, choking grasp on our view of this universe and God. Perhaps our modern quantum physics understanding is wrong. But we have a lot of reasons to believe that in a certain sense, the present is the only thing that exists. The past only exists as a record of what has shaped the present. So in terms of what is actually concrete and tangible, only there's only one slide in the film strip, according to to science. And that the, the things that have influenced that slide cannot be changed materially. The past cannot materially be changed. But the future is far murkier. If I am understanding my lessons correctly, we live in a world that scientists best guess includes chaos, includes Switches being flipped one way or the other in ways that are not necessarily predictable. And so the future, as it is being written moment by moment, is not necessarily set in stone. This view could be imagined as the with the, uh, 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 you could imagine history in this view as a loom in which the tapestry once written is set. The past, once it has influenced this world, the material events of the past will not change. But two things do change. The thread with which we are being woven is guided Continually in ways that could go towards one direction or the other. The thread, the placement of the thread is not set. And the other thing that can change is the meaning of the pattern. A fleck of orange that seemed utterly out of place two generations ago may, over the passage of time, as more weaving is revealed, become revealed to be part of a larger pattern. So although the events of the past may not be changeable, their meaning in context of the loom can. This perspective does a number of very interesting things. Firstly, it it frees us from having to believe that God condemns some people to hell forever from before the beginning of time. So, you know, there's a payoff there for starters. It is also compatible, more compatible with our very limited knowledge of how this world works with our incredibly crude and still very simplistic understanding of physics. It's more compatible with what we know. So it's got that going for it, too. And what it finally offers I would like to say my and my my final my final point, my final stance is it offers us the words of Haggai. The words of Psalm 98, the words of scripture where God is frequently envisioned as a craftsperson and a craftsperson obsessed with the present moment. To say that God is a God of history, we often think that that means that God cares the most about history. God cares the most about those events that have taken place in the past, the formation of the people of Israel, the story of the Bible. I ask you this. Do you really believe that God cares more about the events in the Bible or the events that are occurring right now? Do you in your heart trust that yours is the God of the living. Or have we, like the Sadducees and the Pharisees both, become so wrapped up in our own concepts and in our own worldviews and our own priorities that we imagine there is where God's heart dwells as well. Humans easily dwell in the past. We can wrap an entire lifetime around a single year or even a single day. Obsess about it. Focus on it. Just ask Emily Dickinson. We can spend an entire wasted cycle on this earth obsessing about events that even occurred before we were born. Things that we have never even witnessed ourselves. This is a human foible I do not think God shares. For God is God of the living. Take courage, says Haggai. The promise that I made to you is here. Go and build. The temple had been destroyed, right? And the new one that they were building looked like a mud hut compared to the ancient glory of Solomon's temple. It was people piling one stone on top of another, half professional masons, doing the best they could, scraping together the resources they had. And, you know, there wasn't that much support for building the temple. They said, look, we've, we've kind of, scraped away the ruins of where the temple used to be and cleaned it up a little bit and now we kind of have a place to gather but we don't want to build a temple where well, we won't do it right. Plus, and this doesn't get mentioned explicitly in the uh, in the biblical account but it is very clear by implication they didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. They didn't have the, some of the cherubim. They didn't have a lot of the things that were carried in the tabernacle with the people that were essential Umim and thumim, these mysterious garments that the priests wore that were somehow part of the holiest rituals of ancient Israel, gone. We can forgive the return those returning from exile for being a little bit obsessed with the past and for feeling the present moment inadequate for the rebuilding of the temple, for the taking up of their ancient charge. They could be forgiven, but apparently they couldn't be left to their own devices because God does not. God prods them and prompts them and says, now, now, now. God of the living, God of the present moment says, listen, Remember when it was just a tent that you were carrying around. And I was closer to you than ever before. At the time of the great temple of Solomon, there was distance between God and the people. Start now with what you've got. Build something and trust, knowing that I will build on top of it. God cares deeply about the, the roots and the origins of humanity, our story thus far, how we've gotten here. And God also cares deeply about where we end up, about the kingdom to come, both in this, on this earth and in the hereafter, how that is built, where we are going. God cares deeply about both of those things, but God acts in the present God dwells with us in the present. And even though we recognize that God is above time and supreme to time, that does not mean that the present moment is just another moment to be frittered away, equal in importance to all moments that have gone before and all moments that are to come. No. Under this understanding of history... The present moment is and always will be unique as the only time things are changing. The past is full of events, the future is full of possibilities, and the present is where the rubber is hitting the road. And for that reason, it will always be infinitely, specially, differently important to God, who is God of the living. When we obsess on the past or when we obsess on the future, we treat our present like dirt. We throw it away. We spend hours in, in ruminating or dwelling or bickering about past events. Or we spend hours drifting, looking forward to the future. And those can both be creative endeavors for the present. I'm not going to stand up here and say we don't need to confront the past. We don't need to dream about the future. But we do need to do both of those things in service to the God of the living who is acting in the present. We don't do them for their own sakes. We 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 deal with the past so as to be able to do differently in the present. We dream about the future so as to be able to do differently in the present. Christianity in the Western world can feel a little bit like the Judaism that Haggai addressed. Certainly the church buildings being built now don't hold a candle to the glory of temples past. But during the era of those glorious temples, the people were distant from God, as Haggai would remind us. And by building on what we have in front of us, by taking the present moment, seizing it, and beginning construction of something small, simple, perhaps even slightly miserable, but something that is concrete and real and here, nonetheless, this is the the call that God gives us saying, on that I will build. Start with something small. I'll improve on it. This Christianity in which we dwell appears to be being torn down as fast as it's being built up. And yet, I cannot find it in my heart to accuse God or even to be sure that I should lament this situation. Because the future is behind the back. The future is, is uncrafted, unwritten. It waits for the weaver's hand. And I do not believe that the weaver's hand settles and makes concrete determinations until the present moment. The weaver knows the grand pattern that is being created. We are moving towards the kingdom of God. But exactly how, exactly which thread will go where, I believe that the shuttlecock still remains in the weaver's hand at the present moment. I don't want to, to, to fall into the very trap that I see Jesus condemning and that I'm trying to condemn this morning which is crafting an airtight philosophical worldview, which you can then no longer be assailed by decent, good, common sense and a humble, simple faith. That is, in fact, the exact opposite of what I'm intending to do this morning. What I'm intending to do this morning is say some of these things that we thought were concrete and settled and airtight. God actually lives and from God's perspective can be seen as much more open, much more relational, and much more hopeful. Because if this world is a screenplay, that would try my faith. Doesn't seem like a very fun one. But if this world is a pattern emerging over time, one that is negotiated, one that is in, re- in which we are in relationship with our Creator, then both the unfortunate consequences of our messiness, their play over time, and their ultimate redemption all become part Of one ongoing, still to be formed world. A world held firmly in the hands of a God who cares about this present moment. The God of the living.